Okay, we are in uh, the fifth Sunday of Lent, so let's remind ourselves what Lent is all about. It's a time that was set aside by the church to um, get us prepared to celebrate Easter Resurrection Sunday. But it's a time of focusing. I brought this up last week. It's a time to help us kind of sharpen our focus, especially in a world where everything is so distracting right now. It's always that way, but it seems to be more lately than ever before. And so when we talk about serving and sacrifice, Monday, Thursday, not this Thursday, but a week from this Thursday, that's the evening we set aside to remember Jesus' words to the disciples when he washed their feet. He sacrificed, okay? The very next day, he sacrificed himself. So for those of you that come from high church environments, typically sacrifice involves giving up something. There's nothing wrong with that. That's, that's perfectly good because that helps you focus as well. But the biblical concept of sacrifice is actually to give up something on behalf of someone else. And so I encourage you last week, uh, you got two weeks left till Resurrection Sunday. Be thinking about a friend or a neighbor that you can sacrifice for. Maybe they need financial help. Maybe they need time. I don't know what they need. Maybe they need a friend. But something that you have that's a prized possession that you could give them, okay? Just to show them your love. So be thinking about someone that you know. Um, As you know, for the last year and a half, we have been looking at this concept of the building that God is building. And the reason why we started that was a year and a half ago, the when, the, when we looked at where the church was, it was pretty scattered and fragmented because of the pandemic. And so we decided to spend some time, a year or two, really continuing to keep us refocused. So we started with Leviticus, which was really fun. Most people wouldn't start there. It was really fun when I announced it because several of you came up to me afterwards and said, have you actually read Leviticus? It was great. (laughs) And I said, yes, have you? And so we went through Leviticus and argued that Leviticus is the blueprint for the rest of the Bible. It's the blueprint for this house that God is building. But the house takes a builder, and that's the Holy Spirit. That's what happened to Pentecost. So then we went from there to Ecclesiastes to help us understand that we don't need to be distracted by all these events out in the world. We can stay focused. And now we're in Ephesians, Because Ephesians is the one book that talks about this house, the spiritual temple that God is building, the Holy Spirit is building. So we've gone through half of it, and then we pause for Lent to look at the covenants, because that's a unique part of this house. If you think of the covenants, and I'm hearing from a lot of you that you've never actually studied the covenants, which is intriguing to me, because that's the backbone of Scripture, if you will. Think of a very, very dark world, and somebody turns a flashlight on, or as David said, your word is a, a light to my feet and a lamp for my path or my journey. And so in a very dark world, it's the covenants that guide us down through this darkness. So we've looked at three of the covenants so far. We started with Adam, okay, Adam and Eve. The covenant was real simple. Um, God put in place all the covenants by God are what we call disparity covenants, okay, In other words, here's God and here's us. We're not equal. He gets to decide the covenant. He gets to decide the requirements of the covenant, the blessings of the covenant, and the consequences. If you fail to obey the covenant, you have no say in it. There's no negotiation, okay? Adam didn't say to God, yeah, I don't know about this tree of life thing. I think you ought to make it this tree over here because I don't like that fruit anyway. There's none of that. Here's the covenant, real simple, and you have a choice. Obey or disobey, okay? Abram, take up your stuff. And go. That's it. He went. 
Okay? So we have the first covenant that God made with Adam as a vice regent and Eve to oversee the creation. That was our purpose. To rule over the fishy of the air, the birds of the sea, on and on and on. We were to care for creation. But then he made creation, the inanimate part of it, to function in partnership with us. So he assigned the responsibility of the sun, moon, and the stars, for example, to regulate the days and the weeks of the year, and they have fulfilled their part of it. And then he gave us a handshake agreement with the earth. The earth can't fulfill its purpose without us and vice versa. So the earth, for example, can't feed all of us unless we cultivate it. So it needs us to help it fulfill its purpose and vice versa. So when Adam rebelled, the land was in trouble. As, uh, as Paul says in Romans uh, 8, that the whole creation was frustrated because God frustrated it because of our rebellion. So starting in chapter 3 of Genesis, we see creation going right down the toilet. Okay? It's declining. We begin to see all these evils generated and surfacing, murder, all that sort of stuff. So then in chapter 6, God looked around and found one person, Noah, that was faithful. Um, and so God decided kind of to recalibrate. Story of the flood. If you've never read it, you can read Genesis 6, 7, and 8. That's the story of the flood. But from our perspective of the covenant, when they came out of the covenant, uh, out of the ark, God made a new covenant. He renewed the covenant that he had made with Adam. Be fruitful, fill the earth. We're going to see today why that's important. The earth needs us to fill it so it can fulfill its purpose. And so that's going to pop up again today. So he created, he redid this covenant, but then he added a really new, odd, strange little piece of it. And he said, all of the animals, I'm going to make them terrified of you now. That happens after the flood. You see, before that, we don't have any example that they were. In fact, Noah, the animals came to him. It's like they're tame. Okay, we have a glimpse of what eternity is going to be like. But then afterwards, God knew, he says he knew all the hearts of people. Evil was going to take over and predominate again. And so he put terror in the hearts of the animals so they would run. They keep their distance from us because we're dangerous. We have that problem today. Poachers, some animals, extinction. And so he knew what would happen. It was already happening because there was no regard to animals, none at all. So he brought that terror in their hearts. So if you have a pet that has been tamed, you actually have a glimpse of what's coming. Okay? When the lion will lay down with the lamb, for example. Okay? In the eternal state. And so we'll get to see it. We have glimpses of it today. And it's a wonderful thing. So then he goes from there. Last week we talked about uh, Abram and Sarah, Sarai, who became Abraham and Sarah. And then he made a promise to them. The promise was that I'm going to bless the entire world through you. But that came after the obedience. He picked up his stuff and left. He was faithful. God says, therefore, I'm going to bless the entire world through you. Okay, that was his promise to Abraham. You may remember we left last week the end of the story that uh, when he was 99 years old, uh, Abram tried to give him all these outs. He tried to negotiate with God. Well, just use Eliezer. We don't have a child. No, it's going to come from your own body. So then he has Ishmael. Now he's 99. He says, just take Ishmael. I'm too old to have a child. And, and God says, no, it's going to be through Sarah. So Abram laughed and Sarah laughed. They both are hiding when they laugh, thinking God can't see it. They go, yeah, right. It's going to be 100 when I give birth to a son. And so um, they named him Isaac, third person masculine of the verb to laugh. He laughs. God gets the last laugh. 
It's one of the great stories of the scripture. So then the fulfillment to Abraham happened. His descendants went on down to Egypt for 450 years, you know, thereabouts. And then uh, pretty soon along comes a king who does not know Joseph, and they begin to beat the Israelites. And they they put them into hard labor and make them work really, really hard. And that's where we are today to talk about the covenant with Israel. The covenant with Israel is the major covenant. That's where all the covenants are heading, and it lays the groundwork for the new covenants. So everything we see today, we're going to see that. Now, we're going to go really fast. You're going to see a lot of verses up here because we're going to look through Exodus 6, Exodus 19, a couple of other places. And I know that most of you don't have Bibles, so I'm just going to put up here everything I'm going to read to you. So it's going to be verse after verse after verse. And it's going to be like drinking from a fire hose, so I'm just warning you, okay? If you want to look at it again later, you can look at it again. Podcasts and the YouTube videos are online and you can see it. So this covenant covers Exodus through Deuteronomy, four of the books of the first five. So obviously we're not going to go through it. We're going to pick out the key places of it. But what we're going to see through this whole time this morning, if you get nothing else out of today, I want you to get this one point. It's God's love and affection for us that led him to show grace in our weakness and to make a promise. So if you get nothing else out of it, that is the backbone for all that's God, that God is doing in the scriptures, every covenant. It's his love, and it says he has set his affection on us. It's his love for us that makes him want to bless us, even in spite of our weakness. So the beginning is that Exodus begins in chapter 1. I'm not going to read it. All the nations are there. And that's a statement that God remembered his promise. The nation is intact. Okay? The nation is still intact 450 years later. And so God is faithful. He told Abraham this would happen, and he makes it happen. The foundation of the covenant, I'm going to read verses 2 and 3 of Exodus chapter 6. God said to Moses, I am Yahweh. Okay, pause. Whenever you see the word Lord capitalized in the Old Testament, that's his name. That's not Adonai. It's not El Shaddai. That's his actual name. And why is this important? Because no other God gave their names. Well, we now know there aren't any other gods, but they didn't know that. So they had to name their own gods. They had to describe them. They had to figure it out on their own. Our God comes along and he says, I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. And he says, because I'm giving you my name, this becomes the basis for my promise and covenant with you. So I'm entrusting myself to you. It's no different than if I meet Rob for the first time. I go, hi, Rob. My name is Jim. And he goes, my name is Rob. And a relationship starts. That's how relationships begin, isn't it? With our names. It's almost how they always start. And so he gives us his name, Exodus 3. He explains it. We're not going to go read that. But it's, a, it's the covenant name of God where I, I will do everything that you need done. I am. So, verse 2, God said to Moses, I am Yahweh. This is the whole foundation for everything in the Bible, all the covenants. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, Yahweh, I did not make myself fully known to them because he had not established the covenant he's about to establish. 
You see, in Genesis 12, he starts the redemptive plan to reach the entire world. And now he's carrying it out with Israel. So now he's going to reveal much more of his personal nature to this nation, to his people. And so um, he's introducing himself personally, and his name becomes the basis for his covenant. So then he reveals four things in this little section coming. These four principles underlie the entire Bible. Everything we do will be will somehow fit into one of these four areas. So this is where he lays out what the plan of redemption really looks like all the way into eternity. Okay? The first thing he says is that the time has come. And so the basis for his redemptive plan is this covenant. Verse 4. I also established my covenant with them. Those are the patriarchs. Okay? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give them the land of Canaan where they resided as foreigners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Point number one is that the basis for everything he does is a covenant. Remember last week with Abraham and Sarah, he cut the animals in half. He did not allow Abraham to walk down. He put him in a trance. He walked down in the ancient world. That's how you constituted today we signed a contract used to we shook hands well they would cut animals in half and walk through it together as partners in the covenant and say so be what happens here that's what i'm going to be like if i don't fulfill my end of the covenant he doesn't allow abraham to walk he puts him in a trance and he walks down the middle of it and so basically he's saying if i don't fulfill my my side of the covenant then i'm going to be like these dead animals i mean it's a powerful powerful genesis 15 what he's doing there. So his covenant and his covenant name is the basis for all of that. And he says, uh, I'm going to, you know, I've heard the groaning of the Israelites who the Egyptians are enslaving. But then he goes on and step number two is in verse six, he's going to redeem them. Therefore say to the Israelites, I am Yahweh. There it is again. He says it over and over and over again through all these sections. This is the basis for the covenant. I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. This is the argument that Paul used in Romans 6. We have been freed from slavery to sin. He got it right here. So this is the paradigm. This is the prime model or picture, if you will, of what's going to happen under the new covenant. He freed them from slavery to Egypt. And Paul uses that to say in Romans 6, we've been freed from slavery to sin. We've been redeemed. Okay, the next part is that they will become his prized possession, his people, and he will become our God. Verse 7, I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am Yahweh, your God. There it is again, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. So we, they had a special relationship with him. And this is what appears again, his love for us, that sort of thing. And then in verse 8, the next one is he would give them land, a gift, if you will. I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. It's yours. As a possession. I am Yahweh. There it is again. So, Immediately, this symbolizes a couple of things. Number one, it symbolizes the good life because this land is flowing with milk and honey. And later on, he's going to tell them, you don't have to build houses. They're already there. You don't have to plant vineyards and 
fruit trees and all that, they're already planted. You don't have to buy, get, worry about animals and raising herds. It's already taken care of. This is the good life. Okay? This is symbolized in Romans 8 with the Holy Spirit. But even more than that, we argued last week, and I'm going to say it again, that giving them the land, this is their world, is a picture, I believe, of the whole world eventually. Because what did he say to Abraham in Genesis 12? Through you, I'm going to bless the whole world. What did Paul say in Romans 4? That Abraham received the promise that he would receive the earth as a promise. What did Jesus say in the Beatitudes? Blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth. So this is symbolic of everything. So what does Jesus say when he leaves? Go and make disciples of all the nations, all the earth. So Paul can say in Romans 8, creation has been frustrated by God as protection. It'll be redeemed along with us, the entire earth, everything. So this land he's giving them is really powerful. And that moves into the New Testament with our going out to share everyone on the planet about Jesus. Okay, then we're going to look at the covenant. But before we do that, I want to go to Deuteronomy. You see, Deuteronomy now is at the end of the story. They've gone through the 40 years of wandering. There's a new generation, if you will. Uh, And so Moses, remember Moses, is uh, not going into the promised land. He committed the one act of uh, blasphemy. He struck the rock instead of spoke to it. Punishment, death. So he's, he's talking to them. Deuteronomy is his final words. And he's reminding them of the covenant. So he goes through so much of what we see earlier in Exodus and Leviticus. And he reminds them of the covenant. But here he says something really interesting to me. Deuteronomy 7, verse 7. The Lord did not set his affection on you. And he's talking to the people before they cross over. His last words. And he, he did not choose you because you were more numerous than other people's. For you were the le- fewest of all the peoples. The prophets say it this way. They were the smallest of all the nations. But it was because the Lord loved you. This is the basis for everything that happens. Everything. It's because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery. So the motive is love, but not just free love. I mean, he's interested, he's interested in their commitment as well. In chapter 10, he circles back to this. And he says, verse 14, To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection, his affection on your ancestors and loved them. And he chose you, chose you, their descendants, above all the nations as it is today. Circumcise your hearts. Okay, now the sign of the, circum- uh, sign of the covenant with Abraham was circumcision. We didn't talk about that last week. Because here's really what he has in mind. It's not the physical act of circumcision, Paul says in Galatians, but it's this verse right here. Circumcise your hearts. Cut away the dead skin, the extra skin. Just get rid of it. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. And then when we turn over to Psalm 91, now all this is to help you see his great love for us is based on his love. What he does, everything he does is based on love. There's no way you can overstate how wonderful this good news, this gospel is. 
Psalm 91, some of you have heard this. Verse 1 and 2. Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High and will rest in the shadow of the Almighty, I will say to Yahweh, there's that covenant name, He, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. When you get to the end, verse 14. Because He loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. That's the person who dwells in the shelter of the Most High. I will protect him, for he acknowledges my name. He will call on me, and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. Doesn't say you're going to avoid trouble. It says he's going to be with you in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him with long life. I will satisfy him, and I will show him my salvation. You see, the whole basis for the covenant with Israel, all the covenants, and this leads immediately to the new covenant, is his incredible love. His incredible love. Okay, now let's go back and look at the covenant. Psalm uh, Exodus 19. We started Leviticus with this chapter. God took him out, takes him to the desert of Sinai, says, have a seat. Have a seat. They've not met him yet, okay? Why Sinai? Why take him to the desert? Why not take him to the land flowing with milk and honey and then tell him? Well, you got to remember that uh, they had not yet been given any clues as to the promised land. They don't know anything about it. They don't even know where it is yet. They're on a journey. And so God had promised Abraham at the burning bush, this will be the sign you're going to bring your people and they're going to worship on this mountain. So he takes them to Sinai. And so by taking the, keeping them the space far removed from the promised land, they can't be influenced by the evil they're about to encounter. They're not going to see all the nations yet. Their idol worship and all the evil things that they're doing. So he takes them out to the desert uh, where they're separated. It's like, a, it's like just a private space where they can enjoy God. He does it on purpose. So then when you get to Exodus 19, verse 3, Moses went up to God. They're at the base of Mount Sinai. Remember, they hadn't met him yet. They went up. He went up to God. Okay, Mount Sinai becomes a temple, a temporary residence for God, and he's on the top of the mountain. Remember we said last year, when Moses was at the burning bush, he looks, and God says, hey, take off your sandals. You're on holy ground. What made this ground holy and the ground 20 feet away not holy? It's God's presence. Whenever God shows up, that's where holiness is. And so Mount Sinai, for this period of time, became holy. It became his temporary throne room. So verse 3, Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him. So Yahweh called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. So God reminds them of his protection and love before he even asks them to do anything. If you think about your own journey to Christ, if you think about the time leading up to that journey, if you've ever reflected on it, you will have seen God's presence before that. You just didn't recognize it at the time. But now looking back, you can see how he had his hand on you, guiding you the whole way. This is what we see here. He reminds him of his own presence before he asks anything. But then here's the promise. If you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. 
Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you are to speak to the Israelites. Okay? Then in verse 7, here's their response. Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people responded together, we'll do everything the Lord has says. They don't even know what that is yet. They're already excited. They don't know what it is. He hasn't told them yet. But we learned something else. Um, God demonstrated his love and asked for loyalty before he laid out the stipulations of the covenant. That tells us something. He wanted a relationship. That's far more important than the rules. We're going to see this in the New Testament. He wanted a relationship with them first. We know of no other country in the ancient Near East that has any story like this. None. No other nation. But the promise includes their purpose and what they're supposed to do. Let's go back and read verse 5 and 6 again. If you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Why? Why is he making them special? Because they're better than everybody else? No. Because they have a role to play. Okay? Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests. God is saying, you will become my priests to reach all these rest of these nations. And you will become a holy nation. That's how he's going to do it. That's what our whole thing about Leviticus was all about. Looking at these are the rules of what it means to be holy. And we looked at the reason for the rules, not the rules themselves. Because Ephesians 2, remember a month ago, Jesus did away with all those commands. But yet the law continues on. The reason for the law. So we don't have to obey all those commands anymore. It is not about, it is not about the commands. It's about a relationship. And that's what God is doing. So then God does a, by the way, that's the promise in Genesis 12 to Abram. I will make you a blessing to all the world. That's why Solomon can pray in 1 Kings 8 at the dedication of the temple. And Lord, when a foreigner comes because they've heard of your name, for they will indeed hear of your great name, then listen to their prayers. Answer them and bless them so that they will know that you are the one true God. So, so the fact that the, the rest of the world's included, that was prophesied by all the prophets. That's not a surprise. He chose one to be his prized possession to make them holy so they could reach it, the world, so everyone else would become his prized possession. And this is quoted by Peter. You are his prized possession in 1 Peter chapter 2. So God does something very fun, uh, very revealing, I mean, very consistent with his character. Verse 9, Yahweh said to Moses, I am going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. But he had just said, they can't see me or they will die. So he's protecting the people by creating this dense fog, if you will. And then they can't see him, but they can hear him speaking to Moses. They can hear what he's saying. This is an act of grace right here, okay? So then he wants them to be prepared I mean, as a priest, you've got to be prepared before you start to serve, right? The Lord, Yahweh, said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day, because on that day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. 
on the third day. This introduces a theme that we see in the rest of the scriptures. Anytime you see the language, the third day, that means God's about to reveal his glory. You look in John chapter 2. On the third day, he went to Canaan. Cana, okay, did the wedding. Well, if you count the days up, it's actually the fifth day or later. But John wants us to get this principle. This is the first miracle where Jesus revealed his glory. So on the third day becomes coded language in Scripture. Jesus was raised from the dead when? On the third day. That's the day that God revealed his glory. See? And you're seeing the roots of all of these New Testament passages right here in this passage. Right here. Priests cleanse themselves. That's what they did. And so remember when Jesus, we're going to celebrate this Monday, Thursday evening, a week from this Thursday, he, he washed their feet. Peter said, you'll never wash my feet. Then he says, you have no part of me. He said, well, then wash my whole body. I love it. And Jesus said, no, no, no. You are already clean because of the Holy Spirit. Remember, remember Leviticus? Unclean, clean, and holy. With the coming of the Spirit, we are now clean and will be forever. And that's what a priest does. And he's modeling this right here, teaching them how to be priests. Okay, then we're, gonna go, we're not going to go through chapter 20. That's all the Ten Commandments. There are actually ten words. Ten words that, that are a part of these Ten Commandments that show them how to live life to the fullest. This is the back, backbone of any nation. It should be right here. Don't covet each other's wives. Love the Lord your God. Serve him only. Don't commit murder. Think about the language, okay? A nation that fulfills these 10 words is a rich, rich nation. Right here. This is the heart and soul. This is the backbone of the covenant that he's making with them. No other nation had these, these 10 commands. These, these ten. This is what set them apart. There's no other law code that has this type type of language in it by telling us what we cannot do they tell us what we can do and it's very liberating i always want to know the rules so i know what i can get away with i'm just being honest with you it's the way i'm wired right one time in another church i elder said you know i was one of the elders and the pastor said, this is what i want you to do great now i know what i can do and they said ministry of the gym it's not a job it's an adventure if you tell me what the rules are then i know what i can get away with irs code okay I have a master's in accounting. I know the IRS code, so now I know what I can get away with. I'm just being honest with you. Okay? It's very liberating to tell us what we cannot do, so therefore we know what we can do. So that's why they love the law, because it was so simple, so simple. And all of these Ten Commandments are repeated in the New Testament, all of them. One of them is modified, the command to keep the Sabbath in Hebrews. You know what? We are told to keep the Sabbath every day, because we have the Holy Spirit, and we should rest every day in the Lord. That one command has been changed. Okay, the covenant stipulations, I'm not going to read them. I'm just going to tell you a little bit about them. Here are the covenants that they have to agree to. These are the stipulations, if you will. Slavery is only temporary. If you have a, by a Hebrew servant, he is to serve you for six years. First part of chapter 21. The second part of chapter 21 is that people are to be respected and with dignity. If anyone strikes a person with a fatal blow, he's to be put to death. Humans have dignity. 
Okay, you can read each of the sections later if you want to. The third stipulation is property is to be owned and cared for. Chapter 22, whoever steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it must pay back five head of cattle for the ox and four sheep for the sheep. And it goes through all this private property. It's we, what, we're, what we're seeing here is the first time in history when people are allowed to own private property. Why? Because the original the original covenant was to take care of the earth. The foundation to any environmental policy is ownership of private property. I've asked you several times, when's the last time you changed the oil in your rental car before you returned it? You don't own it, but you take care of your own car. So God knew they had to own it. So we're watching history in the making as he gives them all this land to own. Okay, the fourth one. Society is to be protected and safeguarded. Okay, this starts this way. If a man seduces a virgin who's not pledged to be married and sleeps with her, he must pay the bride price and she shall have to, she has to become his wife. I, that's my very first sermon I preached in 2012 in the amphitheater was on the Deuteronomy version of this verse. So in other words, society is to be protected. Humans have dignity and we have to care for them. Justice and mercy are necessary. Okay? Do not spread false reports. Do not help a guilty person by being a malicious witness. So it's our responsibility to safeguard society. The Sabbath is to be encouraged. If you And he talks about that. Festivals are to be regular. But then there's a real curious last stipulation. They were to trust and respect God's patience. You can't be in a hurry. Here's how he says it in Exodus 23. I will not drive out. He's, getting, he's giving them clues as to where they're going and all these evil nations. I will not drive them out in a single year. Why? Because the land would become desolate and the wild animals too numerous for you. Little by little, I will drive them out before you until you have increased enough to take possession of the land. Now you're beginning to see why the command to be fruitful and multiply. In order to care for the earth, we have to be abundant as people. We have to be. Okay? Now you're understanding that early command. So they were to respect God's patience. That's what it tells us. What's the core requirement of the covenant? Exodus 23, verse 24. Do not bow down before their gods or worship them or follow their practices. This is the core covenant. Don't be sucked into idolatry. Okay? It says it again in verse 32. Do not make a covenant with them or with their gods. Don't do that. What are we expected to do? It's verse 25. You must... Worship the Lord your God, and his blessing will be on your food food and water. I will take away sickness from among you, and none will miscarry or be barren in your land. I will give you a full lifespan. That's the simple covenant. Don't be sucked into idolatry. Stay focused on the Lord. How did Jesus sum up the whole law? The Mosaic law was replaced with the law of Christ. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, 
and you shall love one another as yourself. That's the entire law. Paul says in Romans 8, the righteous requirement of the law to love is now fulfilled in us. It's a divine passive. It doesn't say you have to fulfill it. The Holy Spirit does it for you. If you're having trouble loving God and loving people, you're just a little too far away. Draw closer, and it becomes more rewarding and full. And so, look at what, look at what Moses does to ratify this covenant. Chapter 24, verse 6. Moses took half the blood, they sacrificed these animals, and he put it in bowls, and the other half he splashed against the altar. Verse 8, then Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you with all these words. So, that's the blood of the covenant, it's called. How did the people respond? Verse 7, then he took the book of the covenant, read it to the people. They responded, we will do everything the Lord has asked. We will obey. The blood of the covenant. This is where we're going to end as we head into communion. Look at what Jesus does with the blood of the covenant. I usually quote for you the First Corinthians version of the Lord's Supper, uh, the Last Supper, but this is the Matthew equivalent. Whoops. Uh, Matthew chapter 26, verse 28. He says, um, he took the cup, verse 27, when he had given thanks, he said to them, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant. That's a direct quote from Exodus. But a little difference. This is not the blood of the covenant. This is my blood my blood of the covenant. You see, that covenant is eternal. It's what he told Abraham, Sarah. It's what he told uh, Moses. This is eternal. Now, he says, this is my blood of the covenant. Why? Which is poured out for all of you for the forgiveness of sins. You see, that's the one thing that was lacking in this covenant. The forgiveness of sins. So the covenant with Israel, it's the foundation for everything we believe. The only difference is the law of Moses is replaced with the law of Christ, but the covenant remains the same. Do not be sucked into the idols of the world. Worship God completely. And the second thing is that the blood of animals, Hebrews argues, and Matthew has been replaced in Jesus' own words by my blood of the covenant. And Hebrews says, you've been sprinkled clean by Christ's blood of the covenant. That's what's new. We'll get to the Holy Spirit later on in the next two Sundays when we get to the new covenant leading up to Easter. Father, thank you so much for your richness the depth. Father, I, uh, I fear, Lord, that I've fed them a fire hose today, helped them to walk away with the core idea that you set your affections on us. That's how deeply you love us. And that you, um, you love us so much that you would give your son and he would shed his blood to institute this new covenant. Thank you for making us your prized possession so that we can love our friends and neighbors.
In Jesus' name we pray because he's our high priest. Amen.